Hey everybody, please turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6 as we step back into our practice on simplicity. We continue as a church to lament the open wound of systemic racism in our city and our nation, and we pledge on behalf of our leaders to continue the conversation that we have started over the last few weeks. We're working hard right now to schedule our first race and and justice lecture series. We've invited our first guest, and as you can imagine, it's a bit tricky to schedule anything right now with COVID-19. Whether it is in-person or digital, we're still working that out, but stay tuned. What matters most is what we say and do three months from now or six months from now or a year from now. We are in it over the long haul. That said, the through line for our church is practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland. Our generation, um, at least mine, is not used to a very high level of social unrest. It's nothing new in our nation's history or in church history, but many of us are not used to following Jesus through a time like the one we're in. Our aim is to respond to our historic moment, but not to react. And just to keep our focus on, we apprentice under Jesus, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what he would do if he were us, which as best we can tell is 100% fight off racism from our own heart and body and community and church and city and beyond. That said, 1 Timothy 6, just wait a minute. Any fans out there of the indie darling band, Foster the People? I was listening to their song, Ask Yourself, off the Supermodel record, and I was struck by the chorus lyric. And you say that dreamers always get what they desire. Well, I've found the more I want, the less I've got. Is this the life you've been waiting for? Or are you hoping that you'll be where you want with a little more? Can you re- any of you relate at all? Do you feel like you'll be where you want with a little more? A little more money in your paycheck, a little more cushion in your savings or retirement, a little more square footage in your house, a little more stuff in your home or closet? Foster the People's lyric is just a remix of the age-old maxim, the more you get, the more you, say it with me, the more you want. This is a truth that cuts across the human condition. We've done work on human desire and how human desire is infinite. We, at a theological level, we were made by God and for God. And so nothing less than full participation in the inner life of the Trinity that is God himself, nothing less will ever satisfy our desire. And when we move our desire, or if you prefer, another word for that is our love, off of God, the creator, and onto the creation, onto things, even if they are good, be it money or stuff or work or status or fame or romance or family or marriage or hedonism or travel, you name it, doesn't matter. None of it can bear up under the weight and the pressure of human desire. As a result, many of us live with a chronic sense of dissatisfaction. As one British poet put it, I can't get no satisfaction. This is especially true when it comes to money and stuff. I think of the iconic line from John D. Rockefeller. At time, at the time, he was the richest man in the world, oil tycoon, and when he was asked by a journalist, how much money is enough? His answer after a pause was, just a little bit more. 
No matter how much money you make or things you acquire or success you get after, you will always want just a little bit more. Just as we are about to cross the finish line to, dis- to satisfaction, the goalpost moves. If our strategy to deal with our desire is to attempt to make a lot of money and buy all the things on our list that we want, it is a strategy that is destined to fail. In fact, the Quaker John Woolman said of his own experience as a well-off merchant turned early abolitionist in our nation's history, quote, with an increase of wealth, the desire of wealth increased. Research from social scientists has come to the same conclusion. Robert C. Roberts from Baylor said, upward mobility often ends not in satisfaction and peace, but in exhaustion, disappointment, and emptiness. You end up in a kind of slavery to your own desire in the prison of your own body. It's ironic that we talk so much in our nation about financial freedom, by which we mean, you know, we hope to have so much money by whatever age that we are free of the need to work a job. Never mind that as followers of Jesus, it doesn't matter what our income level is. We are called by God to work, whether it's paid or volunteer, whether it's a job or, you know, a charitable thing. We are called to make a contribution to human flourishing in the world through our mind and our body. our relational soul. But many people who achieve financial freedom at an early age, 55 or 45 or whatever, still live in slavery to desire and with a chronic dissatisfaction. And this is nothing new. As far back as the third century, Superion, one of the church fathers and the bishop of Carthage, said this about the rich in one of his sermons, quote, their property held them in chains chains which shackled their courage and choked their faith and hampered their judgment and throttled their souls. If they stored up their treasure in heaven, they would not now have an enemy and a thief within their household. They think of themselves as owners, whereas it is they rather who are owned, enslaved as they are to their own property. They are not the masters of their money, but its slaves. Cue the quip, do you own your things or do your things own you? So, is there a practice from the way of Jesus to set our heart free from its slavery to desire for more and to let it come to rest in God. Yes, it is the practice of simplicity, which we defined a while back as limiting the number of our possessions, expenses, activities, and social obligations to a level where we are free to live joyfully in the kingdom with Jesus. Richard Foster said this about the practice of simplicity in his book that is at the top of our list of recommended reading on the subject. Quote, The unreasoned boast abounds that the good life is found in accumulation, that more is better. Indeed, we often accept this notion without question, with the result that the lust for affluence in contemporary society has become psychotic. It has completely lost touch with reality. 
Furthermore, the pace of the modern world accentuates our sense of being fractured and fragmented. We feel strained, hurried, breathless, the complexity of rushing to achieve and accumulate more and more threatens frequently to overwhelm us. It seems there is no escape from the rat race. Christian simplicity frees us from this modern mania. It brings sanity to our compulsive extravagance and peace to our frantic spirit. It liberates us. It sets us free. It allows us to see material things for what they are, goods to enhance life, not to oppress life. And while there are analogous ideas to simplicity down through history and kind of all over the world, from Stoicism and Greek philosophy to Buddhism in the East to the more recent minimalism movement, the practice or the spiritual discipline of simplicity for us in the way of Jesus is based not on Seneca or Henry David Thoreau or Marie Kondo, but on the life and teachings of Jesus himself and the writings of the New Testament. Let's take a look at a key New Testament passage on simplicity. The last few teachings in our series were straight from the four Gospels and Jesus himself. But 1 Timothy 6 is the passage that our giving liturgy that we pray pretty much every single Sunday is based on. It's from the, it's kind of from the very end of Paul's letter to his young protege, Timothy. And it's all about how to pastor people into the way of Jesus. Let's work through the text line by by line from verse 2 down to verse 19. Here we go. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 2. These are the things that you are to teach and insist on. Now, in context, Paul is writing about what we now call social justice. He's writing just shy of two millennia before government wealth redistribution for the poor. In the Roman Empire, there is no social security or unemployment or Medicare or nonprofits with a tax-deductible write-off, none of that. The church was the engine for hundreds of years for social justice in the ancient Mediterranean and far beyond. These are the things is referring to Paul's direction in the chapter before on care for widows in the church as well as leaders. He goes on, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ, notice that's his depictor of social justice, and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. Interesting how arrogance and ignorance go together. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Notice in verses 6 to 10, there are six statements from Paul about the reality of money and things. Number one, 
godliness with contentment is great gain, which is a play on words to the previous line in verse 5 about how people think godliness or God-likeness is a means to an end, and the end is financial gain, an idea that is still around in the prosperity gospel and well. But Paul is saying the best thing to gain, and it's a little kind of pun, the best thing to really focus all of your energy and your resources to invest in is not in wealth, but is in your spiritual formation, to let God form you into someone who is godly, who is like God, and is marked by a real deep, genuine sense of contentment and ease and gratitude and peace and joy in your ordinary life. Number two, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Or as the saying goes, you can't take it with you. My dad used to say that to me all the time. And it's true. Every single thing that we have, the clothes on my back, the car that I drove here in, the home that I live in and sleep in at night, all of it, your record collection, whatever, your dinosaur collection for your child, whatever it is, all of it is fleeting. We were born with no material possessions and we die with no material possessions. All we carry with us into the age to come is our relational soul, meaning the relationships that we have invested in and the person that we have become. Number three, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. The word for clothing is skepasma in Greek, and it literally means a covering. It can be translated clothing or shelter. If we have food and, you know, clothes on our back and a place to live, like a roof over our head, that's enough to live in the joy and the love and the peace of the kingdom of God with Jesus. Number four, those who want to get rich fall into temptation or sin and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Notice like the gravity and the oomph of his language. He's saying that wealth is, is dangerous. Not only does it not satisfy you, but it's actually a threat to your soul. It can numb your heart to God. It can take over your mind and your body. It can cause you to oppress the poor and harm the earth and in the end, drive your soul itself into ruin. Number five, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Note, not money is the root of evil. People misquote that on a regular basis but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Still, it's strong language. The love of money is at the heart of so much of what is wrong in the human condition. It's behind systemic racism. It's behind the dark underbelly of globalism and labor ethics and the fashion industry and women's rights. It's behind so much of the carnage of broken relationships due to our own sin and our own autobiography. Behind so much of that is what the New Testament calls mammon, the love or even the worship of the God, so to speak, of money. And number six, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I see this on a regular basis as a pastor where people chase after money and often over a year or two, it's never really fast, over a few years just drift away from the faith, from a, an apprentice relationship to Jesus and a few years later or time later just end up they reap the consequences at a soul level.
Notice there is not a single command in verses 6 to 10. That's coming, but verses 6 to 10 are just statements about reality, about the way life actually works. Do we believe Scripture or not? Do we believe the New Testament, what's right in front of you or not? Deep breath. Keep reading. But you, man of God, and he's writing to a man, same is true for you women, flee from all this, like literally go in the exact opposite direction, run, and pursue, this is what you run after, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Right, we quote that a lot, but notice in context, it's about the fight against money and stuff and the desire for more. Take hold, this is what you're to run after, of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses, like what people now call conversion. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, all life is from God, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made his own good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame, like very high priority, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. At this point, he's just... That's beautiful. To clarify, Paul is not on a tangent or on a new subject. It's all one, like he's a hyper, sharp, logical, pretty linear mind. He's not on a new subject at all. It's all one flow of thought. He's saying, run away from materialism and all that and run toward eternal life, which is a way of saying into the inner life of the Trinity itself, not only in the future, but in the here and now. And then he says this, stay with me. Command those who are rich in this present world. Now hit pause. For years, I mean, I grew up reading the Bible. And for years, I read that line and I thought it was about somebody else. I would think, oh, there was this guy in our church. I remember who was a friend of our family and he was well off. It's about him. It's not about me. I'm not rich. I'm middle class. I like wear hand-me-downs, whatever it is. But you all know the stats. If you own a car, if you have a computer or an iPhone or any phone at all, if you have more than one pair of shoes, you are in the top few single digits of wealth in the world. I hesitate to say all of you who are watching, but more than likely the vast majority of you who are watching qualify as, in Paul's language, those who are rich in this present world, if not by domestic standards, at least by international standards. And listen to what Paul has to say to people like you and like me. Command those who are rich not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life." In verses 17 to 19, there are six commands for followers of Jesus 
who are rich in this present world, i.e. a lot of us, if not all of us. One, do not be arrogant. With wealth comes pride, a sense of arrogant autonomy, the illusion that we're a self-made woman or man, the exact opposite of a humble spirit of gratitude. Number two, do not put your hope in wealth, meaning don't look to money and things or success in your career to make you safe and secure or to make you feel happy and content. One, because it can't deliver on its promise. It can't do that for you. And two, because it can be taken away at any moment by a global pandemic or a recession or just life. Number three, we are to deeply enjoy things as a gift from our loving, generous Father. Paul writes, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Paul isn't down on joy or pleasure or a good meal or beauty, not at all, any more than Jesus was. Number four, we are to do good to be rich in good deeds. Notice he's not talking about what we do with our wealth yet, that's the next line, but with our privilege. We are to leverage our privilege on behalf of other people who are in need. Number five, we are to be generous and willing to share all of our wealth as well as our privilege. And finally, we are to lay up treasure as a firm foundation for the coming age. To lay up treasure in heaven or lay up treasure in the age to come, that was a common rabbinic idiom in the first century that meant to do social justice in order to invest in the future of Israel and of God's world. But Paul goes on to say, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And that's present tense in the here and now. The way that we take hold, notice for Paul, the way that we take hold of the inner life of the Trinity itself, that we enter into and experience the future in the present, God in the here and now is through the practice of simplicity. Now, I'm guessing that you want the heart on offer in Paul's mind and imagination, a heart that is full of contentment and the life that is truly life. The question is, how? How do we index our heart away from its slavery to the desire for more and toward freedom? Well, there are two answers to that question from the way of Jesus and the writings of the New Testament and down through church history, both of which fall under the rubric of the practice of simplicity. Number one, limit how much you own. And number two, practice generosity. A short word on each. Number one, limit how much you own. The Catholic intellectual G.K. Chesterton once said, there are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. That quote is from his book, Crimes of England, which was a manifesto for what he called the small is beautiful movement. It was a 20th century faith-based movement for wealth redistribution in the UK. And it was based around the idea that every single English person should have, he said, three acres and a cow, which is pretty great. And the first step is to desire less or to de-own, to set limits on our budget and our spending and our activities and the number of things in our home or our wardrobe or our garage and so on. 
Now, we live in a culture that is anti-limit, like at pretty much every level, not just with things. Anti-limits on our budget, yes, and our spending, anti-limits on our environment or the economy and regulation or limits on the human body itself. None, no, just keep your laws off of everything is the heart of the right and the left, which comes as no surprise for us as followers of Jesus, as one way to read the Genesis 3 story of original sin is as a temptation to transgress our limitations as human beings, our place in the cosmos, under the creator and over the creation. So while the world all around us is asking, how can I get more, more money, more things, more status, whatever, we are asking, how can I live with less? How can I set limits on materialism in order not to like banish pleasure or anything like that, but to cultivate a heart of deep and real contentment? The spiritual director, Jan Johnson, also in our recommended reading, writes, our living spaces are often cluttered with too many objects and our vacations hurried with too many good things to do. Jesus, however, knew the deep goodness of limiting oneself. As life becomes more outwardly simple, it becomes more inwardly rich. A study from clinical psychologist Pamelia Thatcher found that the greater the clutter in your home, the lower the quality of your sleep. Hoarders, for example, are far more likely to have a sleep disorder. That's an extreme example. But the point is, there's a correlation between excess and emotional health. Too much stuff, as we said a few weeks ago, is a distraction to our mind, a drain on our time, and a danger to our heart as a follower of Jesus. But to de-own and to live inside self-imposed limits with joy will require that we resist what a few weeks ago we called the propaganda of more, i.e. advertising. Now, I, know, I recognize we're in Portland, a bunch of you work for ad agencies, that's not a passive aggressive slam. I recognize there is a time and a place for marketing. As an author who does some of that work, I'm grateful. There's a kind of advertising where the goal is just to spread the word about a good service or product, beautiful all for it. But the point of most advertising is to increase desire, to turn a want into a felt need. In 2013, which is the most recent stat I could find, and it's not that recent, marketing departments in the US alone spent $171 billion on advertising media. And that's not even a recent stat. Now, ad agencies are literally banking on advertising to work on you. Remember, business people are smart. They don't do that like, maybe it will work. They do that because, no, there's a very high probability it will work on you. Billions are spent based on trillions of bits of data garnered from our every Google search, Zoom call, and Instagram scroll to increase desire in our heart in order to make money off of what for a lot of us is our human desire that at its root is for God. We're attempting to fill this inner void with things that is really an ache for God and life in the kingdom. Or it's all in order, as Will Rogers put it so many years ago, we spend money that we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't like. It's just vanity. As John Kavanaugh put it in his book on this subject, our consumer society is a formation system 
It forms us and our behavior, or better said, it deforms us and our behavior, meaning we have to resist the inertia of our culture. It's not stationary. We have to take an active stand. We have to fight the good fight, as Paul said. This doesn't mean that we don't own anything. Simplicity is not about owning nothing. It's about owning less things. Um, it doesn't mean that we're anti-pleasure or anti-beauty or anti-at all. Read Jesus' life. He was not like that. It just means that we limit ourselves of our own free will and volition. And we live with what the Quaker Thomas Kelly called a carefree unconcern for possessions. I love that. Second, the kind of next step is to practice generosity. It's one thing to own less. That's great. It's a whole other thing to want less. It's one thing to like have a budget and stick to it. It's another thing to walk through a store or peruse a website or see something you like and think, no, I'm great. I'm content and full of joy for what I have and who I am. That's where the real money is, pun intended. So step one toward freedom from our slavery to the desire for more is to limit how much we own. But the next step that is even more important is to give out of what we have. As Jesus said, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Now the tense of the original Greek, for those of you thinking, does that like, is that literal? Like sell every single thing I am and like walk around without, no, not at all. First off, it's hyperbole. And second, the tense in the original Greek is aorist active, meaning it's not a one-time event, it's a way of life. The idea is on a regular basis, sell your extra stuff and give the money to the poor and those in need. And we cringe when we read that line from Jesus. But remember, Jesus also said, it is better to give than to receive. The word better there is makarios in Greek, and it literally means happy. We are happier if we give than if we receive. Or put another way, a happy life is the result of generosity far more than it is the result of greed. Now, few of us believe Jesus on this one. In all honesty, I don't at a, on a regular basis. In spite, of the fact that so, in spite of the fact that social science has time and again said the exact same thing, that shocker, Jesus was spot on. Sociologist Christian Smith and Hilary Davidson in The Paradox of Generosity write this, those who give receive back in turn. By spending ourselves for others' well-being, we enhance our own standing. This is not only a philosophical or religious teaching, it is a sociological fact. People rightly say that money cannot buy happiness, but money and happiness are still related in a curious way. Happiness can be the result not of spending more money on oneself, but rather of giving money away to others. The data examined here show in their study show this not to be just a nice idea, but a social scientific fact. In their research, generosity correlates to greater levels of personal happiness, physical health, lower levels of depression, a sense of purpose, and a higher interest in personal growth. As the way of Jesus has long said, giving is Jesus' antidote to the disease of greed. Think about it. One way to frame the spiritual journey is as a lifelong movement off of the egoic operating system and into a life of agape. Under that frame, slavery is defined as greed and freedom as an inner 
kind of woman or man of self-giving, generous, sacrificial love, where we take on the inner life of the Trinity in our own body. Every step we take toward generosity is a step toward freedom and life. Generosity has all sorts of benefits. It deepens our trust in God and His provision. It deepens our love for Him and a sense of His love for us. It cultivates a spirit of gratitude. It cultivates a deep sense of enjoyment for the simple, ordinary pleasures of life, a meal or a chat with a friend or a sunrise. It puts money in its rightful place in our heart. It blesses other people. It makes the world a more just place with more equity and less tension. It cares for the earth in such a way that we can pass it on for generations to come. It makes it possible for the gospel and the church to grow and expand all around the world. And it sets our heart free from the desire for more. For all of those reasons and other ones, the time to start is now. In a global recession in the middle of COVID-19? Yes, right now. One, because contrary to what most people assume, the more money you make, the harder it is to give it away. Take uh, tithing, for example, more on that in a minute. But if you're a college student and you make 500 bucks a month from a part-time job, the tithe on that is 50 bucks. That's a lot of money, in particular for a college student. And it's hard at first to give that up. That's, you know, whatever. But let's say you graduate and let's say like you just killed it. You, you have background behind you and you get a really good job where you make $5,000 a month. The tithe on that is $500, the same amount as your previous paycheck. It will always be harder to give away $500 than it is to give away $50. The same is true no matter how much money you do or do not make. And two, because of spiritual formation, because you and I are becoming a soul, because as we've said before, at first we make our choices and then our choices make us, with each step toward a generous life or away from a generous life, we are becoming more free or more and more enslaved to the greed of our own heart and its chronic dissatisfaction. And anyone can be generous, no matter where you fall on the socioeconomic bracket, no matter how much money you have or don't have, whether you are a middle schooler or a retiree, you don't have to be rich, you don't even need a steady job, you don't even need money. Many of you are out of work right now. You can be generous with the resource of your time or your prayer or your relationship or your attention. And generosity is a spiritual discipline, meaning while we follow the Spirit's movement in our heart, we also discipline our budget to give when we feel like it. And when, in all honesty, we don't really feel like it. When we have extra and when, da, we had a bill come that was unexpected and we just barely have enough. We don't wait around for lightning to strike us with inspiration or the lotto to make it rich or that we just, it's a discipline. We start small and move forward. That said, our practice for the week ahead is all up at practicingtheway.org slash simplicity. There are two parts based on the two steps of, you know, limit what you own and practice generosity. To limit how much we own, the plan is to 
minimize, for lack of a better word, our home. Unless you live in a studio apartment or, and or by yourself, or you're already like a hardcore minimalist, this will take a lot longer than a week, right? We have a practice to get you started. This will likely take you months, if not even longer. But to get you started, it's the same basic process as uh, our last part with the closet, if you remember that a while ago. Go through each room in your home and sort it into five categories, a giveaway pile, stuff you wanna give away, a sell pile, a throwaway or recycle pile, and a weight pile. Remember that pile is key. When we, what we discover in an exercise like this one is just like the level of emotional attachment in our heart, like the, at how deep the greed goes or the sense of I need this to be happy or safe and secure or trauma from our past or personality stuff or culture, whatever it is, how deep it goes. And a great way to navigate that emotional quagmire is just to put things that you have a question mark around in a bag or in a box and then put it out of sight, of my, out of sight in mind in your closet or the garage or whatever. And if at any point, and then set a time limit, three to six months. And if if at any point you change your mind, you're like, oh, I really wish I had that vase or I really wish I had that book or whatever it is, just go get it out, no guilt or shame. But for most of the stuff, when we come back to that box a few months later, it will be much easier at our heart to just ah, live with freedom and give. And then number five, keep what you feel is useful and beautiful and has a purpose in your life as a follower of Jesus. A few rules of thumb from the experts out there. Start with the easy stuff, like start with your living room or your family room or your bedroom, right? Save the hard stuff for last, like sentimental items, do that very last, or the garage if you have one, or you have a home office, like save the file cabinet, like save all of that stuff for later. Hold each item in your hand and ask a few basic questions. Of course, the Marie Kondo question, does it spark joy? Yeah, make your sarcastic comment, I get it. Here's a other, few other questions. Do I need this? Is it useful and or beautiful? Does it aid me or hamper me in my quest to live in the kingdom of God with Jesus? Avoid duplicates and collections. Most of us don't need more than one pair of sheets for our bed or more than one or two towels for our bathroom, much less that like 90s era Starbucks city collection from whatever. It's not a slam at all, I'm just saying. I don't know if you need it. Avoid the trap of, but I may use this someday. Um, there, and I get that and I understand there's socioeconomic stuff to that, but that is the reason that so many of us hold on to and hoard things that we don't need and would do much more good somewhere else. And last, get help from the experts. We have a mini series on our podcast from Joshua Becker at becomingminimalist.com. He's a former pastor and follower of Jesus, just with great ideas, as well as a list of recommended resources on our site. Then, stay with me, on generosity, here's a few best practices to get you started. One, start small. As we like to say, start where you're at, not where you should be. If you're out of work right now, or you're in debt, or whatever the thing is, just start small. Start right where you're at. No guilt, no shame, no pressure. Tap into the inner desire you have for freedom with Jesus. Second, give first. Or in the language of biblical theology, give the first fruits. Ancient agrarian followers of Jesus would give the first fruits of their harvest to God as an act of gratitude for the rain and the sun and as an act of trust in God's provision in the weeks and months to come. 
rather than wait until the end of harvest and see if they have anything left and give out of that. For us today and the kind of information economy or whatever, it means that as soon as we get our paycheck, we give whatever we have determined in our heart to give rather than wait and just play it safe for later. Third, divert one specific expense. Cut back on your eat out budget. That's an easy one for the vast majority of Portlanders. That was my first thing when I moved here. I'm like a little bit fiscal conservative, you know, and I was just shocked at like people will live and like drive a really old car who have a great job and like live in a small place and just blow hundreds and hundreds of dollars every month on eating out. I was like not used to that at all from my family of origin. So that's an easy one for a lot of us to cut out on. Or a small thing, cancel your Disney Plus subscription. That's Star Wars, I know, maybe that's sacrilege. But, or divert and divert that, whether it's a little bit or a lot, to generosity. Or more radical, sell your car and get rid of the payment or downsize your home. I mean, like it's up to you, whatever the Spirit of God is stirring in your heart and a thousand things in between. Four, give to a person or a cause that you care about but with special attention to the poor and to the church. Number five, if you can, tithe. The New Testament does not teach, as far as I can tell, that we as followers of Jesus have to tithe. That's a Hebrew word meaning 10%, that we have to give 10% of our gross income to God. But most followers of Jesus argue that tithing is like an economic floor to start from as an apprentice of Jesus, and that we, at least if we are middle class, are to direct our tithe to the poor and to the church. Number six, if you already tithe, consider a graduated tithe. The basic idea, if you're new to that language, the basic idea of a graduated tithe is that as your income goes up, the percentage that you give goes up with it from 10% to any number. Or as Craig Blomberg put it in his excellent academic word, work neither poverty nor riches, raise your standard of loving, not your standard of living. If you're raising a family of four in our city on $40,000 a year or whatever, tithing is not easy with cost of living, um, what it is in our city. But if you're making $400,000 a year or whatever and tithing, that's great, thank you very much. But let's be honest, it's not all that sacrificial. Many followers of Jesus set a ceiling on salary, a self-imposed one that adjusted to inflation, they commit to never live above, at least or at least not for a season of life. The most famous example of this is John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, who said, gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Early in life, he committed to live on 28 pounds a year. It's a long time ago, 17th century, 18th century. Since inflation was low, um, that number stayed the same throughout his lifetime. When he first made that decision, his income was 30 pounds a year. So he set it under that. But by the end of his life, due to book sales, it was 1,400 but he still lived on 28 pounds a year and gave the rest away. One of the reasons he was so passionate about this, about generosity, was because he started to notice a disturbing trend that as people on behalf of his work and the church came to follow Jesus, they were often lifted out of poverty and then went on to become more and more prosperous. But then materialism started to warp their heart. In fact, there's a French historian who argues the reason, and this is up for debate, but he argues the reason England still has a queen and never had a revolution like France and America is because Wesley and the Methodists so transformed the life of the poor in England that there was no need for a revolution. 
Instead, slow, gradual change to democracy came about. Now, whether or not that's true, the point is, as you make more, the idea of a graduated tithe is you give more than ever before. My wife and I do this, and it, it is more sacrificial, but man, it has, in particular in a time like the one we're in now, but it has set our heart free to live and run in the joy of the kingdom. Finally, watch what happens in your heart. Just pay attention. As you start to inch into generosity, you, I just pay attention. I don't want to like prom, overpromise and underdeliver, but you will most likely feel more free, more happy, more content, more at ease in your own body and in the inner life of God Himself. And just let that, pay attention and let that spur you on to greater generosity. To end, you know, again, this is, man, what a, what a time that we live in. I don't even know what to say most weeks. And it may sound like a bizarre time to talk about simplicity. We're in a global recession. Many of us are hurting. Um, to those of you out of work or those of you who are facing the loss of a business or a dream or an education, we stand with you. We take it as our responsibility to stand with you and share with you in relationship and love. That is our heart. But when this is all over, just set in faith, most likely our consumer economy will kick right back into high gear. There has never been a better time than I'm aware of in my lifetime to reset. Reset everything. Our budget, our things, how we dress, what is in our home, our time, what we commit to, our schedule, our activities. There's just never, it's like a global reset button across the world. And I think it's the right thing to do, not just the right thing to do, but the right thing to do. It's the way of Jesus, the way to lay hold of eternal life.